Good morning. It is a pleasure for me to be with you this morning, although I wish I could be here uh, under better circumstances. I know that many of you uh, are and will continue to pray for Chris and for patience. Um, I uh, just returned from Europe where I've been for the last month and got a, a call um, asking if I was scheduled to be anywhere tomorrow and uh, if I could fill in this morning. And it just so happened that uh, you know I'd, I'd actually kind of deliberately planned that today I would be at my home church and that I wouldn't have anything to do this morning, any responsibilities. The Lord had uh, had other plans for that. So good, good to be with you this morning. You're all quite welcome, by the way, to look at Chris's notes uh, in the back and to reference the, uh, the passage that he cites. I, however, will not be referring to them this morning. So, uh, but do feel free to, uh, to look at them if you would like to. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 139, which you will not find in your bulletin. Psalm 139. And if you don't have a Bible, shame on you. Look on with someone who does. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning uh, as, uh, as, as Christians, as those who would worship you, Father, and we pray that you would open our hearts in our minds this morning, that you would speak through me and uh, take my imperfect words and perfect them in the hearts and the minds of those who are within the sound of my voice. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Um, yes, I am the executive director of the Fixed Point Foundation. You can look us up on the web and you'll maybe find some interesting things about us. Fixed Point Foundation is a ministry that is dedicated to the public defense of the Christian faith. Um, we seek to be a voice for Christ in the culture. And if you've ever picked up the newspaper or read a magazine or turned on the TV or listened to the radio and regretted that in mainstream media there was not someone to present the Christian view, to present what you believe, that's what we do. Um, a Jewish friend of mine said to me, you're kind of like the anti-defamation league. And I thought, well... I suppose um, we're not a, a legal organization. That is, we don't seek to go around prosecuting people who say bad things about Christians. But there is some truth to the fact that we are seeking to push back just a little bit against a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity. And uh, to that end, uh, I am, to use the Christian vernacular, uh, an apologist. I try to avoid words like that because a lot of people think that means I go around apologizing for the Crusades and, you know, and for Jesus and things like that. And that's not exactly um, what we do. And certainly unbelievers are not familiar with what a term like that means. But 
Um, Christians like to use it, and if it's helpful to you, then, then, uh, then by all means, um, you can categorize us in that way. And it's in that context that I wish to speak this morning. That is, it's in the context of the work that we do at Fixed Point Foundation that I wish to speak this morning. And Ben Hallbrooks, who is, uh, is a member of your church, Ben Hallbrooks is on our staff, and he certainly can tell you an awful lot about that. It's Ben's job to digitize uh, almost everything we do and to, uh, to disseminate it um, that way. And Ben is uh, very skilled at that, and I'm very grateful to have him and Whitney as, uh, as a part of our team. Um, a few years ago, I had the opportunity... I don't know if I want to call it an opportunity. I had, it happened. I debated uh, a man by the name of Christopher Hitchens, who some of you um, will know. He's the late Christopher Hitchens, who was a uh, severe critic, um, to put it mildly, of the Christian faith. And if all you know about Christopher Hitchens is the title of his book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, then you get a pretty good idea of what he thought about religion. Um, and, uh, and Christianity was, uh, was spared nothing along with every other religion. And the, uh, the two of us, uh, we got to know each other reasonably well, and we debated each other privately a number of times, and then publicly uh, in uh, one infamous occasion uh, in, of all places, Billings, Montana. When Christopher was dying, he was telling me that the only state he had never been to and he regretted he would never get to was Montana. And I said, well, that's where we'll do our debate. And um, so we, we, uh, we went out to, um, to Billings and we went at it. But Christopher, I think, in the course of this debate, sort of um, encapsulated what is, what is becoming very much a trend in our culture and a view of human life. And a view, more than that, a view of Christianity. That is this view that Christianity is something that needs to be eradicated from the culture. We don't need it. It's a problem. Drive it from the schools drive it from public life, drive it from everything. Christianity is being treated, as I like to say, increasingly like smoking. You can do it, but only in designated areas. And this morning, you know, we're in a designated area. You're permitted to do it here, but, you know, don't, don't you dare take it seriously enough as to plan to take it outside the doors of, and I'll say this church, because this morning that's what it is, outside the doors of, of this church. Don't do that. You're not supposed to do that anymore. Your faith is to be privatized. And in this clip that, that Ben will play, and, and he might say not just a prayer for, for uh, Chris and for patience, but for our technology this morning, uh, we'll hope that, uh, that that works. But Ben's going to play for you a clip from that debate. And there's a screen that's going to pop down here in just a moment, I'm told. And I will disappear from view. <laughs> not to be burdened with the terrible uh, guilt and tyranny and parochialism and bloodshed and sadism and masochism of the Old Testament. But, sorry man, you saddled yourself with that. And you can't get away from it. And you never will be able to. And that's why Christianity continues to splinter and also to commit terrible crimes against the body and the spirit. What, what was it that I heard there? Um crimes inflicted on the body and the, what did he say, the spirit, I think? 
It's very interesting coming from an atheist. There is no spirit in your worldview, Christopher. You can't have it both ways. Now, in that particular clip, what you hear, and of course, Christopher at this time was, uh, was um, dying from esophageal cancer, and you see that he's quite emaciated, hairless, uh, as a result of the radiation and um, chemotherapy um, that he had received. And yet he clings doggedly to this idea that Christianity is responsible for so many of the world's evils, responsible for the evils that we experience in our own culture. We've got to get rid of it. And then he says, quite revealingly, I think, it commits crimes against what? The body and the the spirit. The spirit. Uh, You see, what he reveals, uh, mistakenly, is the degree to which he himself had been influenced by Judeo-Christian worldview. That there was something in him that still was clinging to the idea that he had a spirit. And yet, if you don't believe in God, then on what basis can you say that there is a spirit? That there's anything eternal? And yet, on the one hand, he laments all the evils in society, and at the same time, he's trying to kick out the very thing that would serve to restrain mankind from his evil and indeed would seek to free us from it and give us a hope. Of eternity. This, I'm afraid, ladies and gentlemen, is the direction that we are increasingly headed in society. A lot of people are buying into this sort of idea. Shortly after uh, one of my encounters with, uh, with Christopher Hitchens, my wife and I, Lori, we went to Ukraine to finalize the adoption of a beautiful little girl who is now uh, our daughter. Her name is Sasha, and Sasha could not be with us um, this morning, but many of you are, are perhaps familiar with Sasha's story if you've read my book, The Grace Effect, which is available in fine bookstores everywhere and um, goes to support the ministry of Fixed Point Foundation. But in it, I tell the story of Sasha. I use Sasha's story as a bit of a vehicle for pointing out how ideas like this, what they look like, how they play out in the lives of real people. In other words, this isn't just, you know, some pointy-headed intellectual discussion. This is stuff that trickles down to the popular culture level and has played out in the lives of millions of people um, with horrifying consequences. Um, what we found when we were in Ukraine, and by the way, I taught the history of Eastern Europe for the better part of a decade. Um, I am very familiar with that part of the world. Had been there at least five times prior to our going on this particular occasion. But this time we were there for a prolonged period of time, and we were there negotiating for the life of a child. So it was a little bit different, in other words, than leading a tour group, or it was a little bit different than going over and, and uh, engaging the, the host country's Christian population. This time we're dealing with government and, uh, officials. We're dealing with those people who would run the orphanages. And what you discovered is that they were all corrupt. Everybody that we were dealing with was corrupt. They all required uh, uh, some kind of bribery. And what you encountered with the children, and when you began poking around and asking questions, was you discovered human degradation, um, sex trafficking, malnutrition on a level that was staggering. And it leads you to begin to ask questions like, why do you encounter it there and not as much here? It's not to say, I'm not saying that it doesn't happen here. I'm not a Pollyanna. 
Plenty of evil happens here. Atlanta is a hub for human trafficking. But why don't we experience that kind of corruption at that level? You don't go to buy your car tags with the expectation you'll have to pay the person behind the counter an extra 50 in order to get your tags. If you did, you'd say, hey, I want to see your boss. You know, so you don't have the expectation of being ripped off every time you encounter um, uh, the, the officials that, that we, uh, we must deal with in daily life in this country. And yet there, it's, it's just the way it works. People will say, well, it's a gift society. Well, I, I know the difference between gifts and corruption. And it's tremendous corruption. And I began asking myself, you know, how can... How are we as Christians to process this? How do we understand this? I mean, if we believe, which I hope you do, that human nature is the same the world over. It's the biblical claim, Jeremiah 17, 9, which tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In other words, each of us has the capacity for extraordinary evil. All of us. It's not that Americans, it's not, not, not like it's, you know, that somehow Americans are innately better. You're not. So what would we say is the difference between what we would encounter, say, in the Western world and what we encounter in, uh, say, places like almost anywhere, Asia um, or Africa, or in this case, Eastern Europe, which um, suffered for 75 years under communist, that is to say, atheistic rule, where the a belief in God was driven from society systematically, deliberately. How are we to understand that? Well, I think that we could say that America has had the blessing, and to that extent much of the Western world has had the blessing of being gentled by the presence of the gospel. That's what we call common grace. And it's had a tremendous influence upon our own culture. But that is changing it's changing here. There's been a slow leak of Christian influence from the culture, and it's reaping horrifying consequences. Our view of human life is changing. It was reported last month that some 47 babies' bodies were discovered in a cat litter box, or cat litter boxes, I should say, in Kermit Gosnell's abortion clinic. You know, he's the uh, Gosnell, you may recall, is the abortion doctor who was killing newborn children. And there's evidence, increasing uh, rumors, to suggest that his clinic is really not um, anomalous, that there are others that were conducting themselves in very similar ways. And why not? I mean, if you don't believe that man is fearfully and wonderfully made, if you believe that man is accidentally made, then why not conclude that man is an animal like any other and should be treated like any other? Peter Singer, um, the bioethicist at Princeton University, celebrated at Princeton University, a man that at Fixed Point Foundation we have encountered, debated twice, um, both at Princeton and at, uh, in Melbourne, Australia, Peter Singer, arguably the most influential philosopher of the second half of the 20th century and beyond, even if you're not familiar with him, Singer's philosophy has 
very definitely penetrated um, to the popular culture level. Uh, we even see it in some of our, our policy that is increasingly creeping towards a soft euthanasia. Singer is a guy that is uh, perhaps the most consistent atheist that I have encountered, if not personally, than in his philosophically. And Singer argues, for example, that mothers should get 28 days with newborn children to determine whether or not to keep them or to euthanize them. Let me repeat that. Singer argues that mothers should get 28 days, roughly a month, with their newborn children to determine whether or not to keep them or to put them down. Singer would say, we're killing our children when they're unborn. What is the difference to kill them after they are born? Singer's argument is that man is an animal. We put down other animals. We're, the earth is exceeding its carrying capacity. There are some uh, uh, human beings who will not turn out to be productive or useful to society. And therefore, they must be eradicated. Some have argued that Singer has not been particularly consistent in his personal life because his mother has, uh, has Alzheimer's. And uh, why doesn't he put her down? And he has said that he would, but his sister is opposed to that. Now, you may say this is just some, some uh, uh, crackpot who is putting forward these kinds of ideas. Crackpot he may be, but he is at arguably um, one of our finest institutions, and, uh, and his philosophy has been taken up by many others. Some of you may have seen in the last few weeks a uh, video that has kind of gone viral on the Internet of students at George Mason University who are signing a petition for four-trimester abortion, which is to say um, for, for uh, uh, mothers to have the right to exterminate their children after they're born. Can you imagine um, our society arguing for these things um, half a century ago? It's a picture of our slide into the abyss as we, on the one hand, drive Christianity from the culture and on the other, embrace the very things that it would save us from. Um, several months ago, I did an interview with John Stossel on Fox, and hence the reason the screen is still down. And this clip is a little bit longer than what I would, I would prefer to show you, but I want you to get the full context of Stossel's remarks. And let me say this to begin with. If you're familiar with John Stossel, I like John Stossel. John Stossel was a libertarian. Um, as he says in this, he is uh, an agnostic. Um, Stossel is pretty conservative in a, in a number of ways, but here's a guy who will make an argument that, hey, we really don't need uh, Christianity in order to be good. All the people that song, imagine John Lennon suggests that if there were no religion, we'd live in harmony. And given all the people killed in the Crusades and in Islamic holy wars, he's got a point. But it's also true that millions of people were murdered by atheists, 60 to 100 million, depending on how you define murder. Talking about Mao, Hitler, and Stalin. 
Larry Taunton says it's because they were atheists that they killed people. You don't know that. What do you mean? Well, I'll put it the way the Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky put it, and that is if there is no immortality, there can be no virtue, and all things are permissible. That is to say, if there, there is no God, then it's anything goes, and you can do whatever you can get away with. And that clearly was, uh, was part of the driving force behind some of those communist regimes. I don't know. I am not convinced there's a God. I still try to do good things because I want to do good things. God doesn't play into it. I don't think the point here is that if you are an atheist, it, it always equals genocide. And I didn't say atheist. I'm an agnostic. Sure, I'm sure, not sure. sure. Oh, the atheists okay. are sure there's no God. <laughs> All right. But we do know this, that, that these were very definitely um, states that, that at, a, at, at a governmental level instituted atheism. And the result was... Um, Acquired atheism. Uh, yes. Eliminated religion. It, very, very definitely. But then from the top down, they were, it's, it's this a story about big government killing people. These oh, were well, dictators I mean, killing. Uh, you're, it didn't matter if the people were religious or not. They killed them. Uh, certainly. Um, I, I mean, listen, I think big government's uh, part of the problem here. But if you ultimately believe that there's no one to judge in the next life, your actions in this one, I think it removes some of the, uh, some of the incentive for, for good behavior and and perhaps you begin to see your fellow man as nothing more than an accident in space and time. Well, what about all the Christian crusaders who killed people? Well, I, I, I wouldn't, first of all, begin to deny that many evil things have been done in the name of religion. Many evil things have been done in the name of science um, as well. But I don't think we would say that science is evil. And, uh, and I'm not prepared to say that all religion is evil. Certainly we could say that, that those killings that were done in the name of Christ were not consistent with Christ's own teaching. So... Uh, in that case, I would say that religion was hijacked, just as we might say that uh, the uh, eugenics movement hijacked science. Your book, The Grace Effect, argues that when people are religious, good things spread. What do you mean? Well, I mean this, that when there is a, a significant presence of Christians within a culture, and I'm not speaking of, of all religions here. Just Christianity. I'm speaking specifically of Christianity that there is a reciprocal um, effect, that um, there's uh, more care for the poor, there's more care for the elderly, there's more care for the sick, for the orphaned, uh, and I think the data bears this out. Give the numbers. It's a, it's a remarkable amount. Yeah, it's, it, it really is, um, John. The, uh, the average person who calls themselves um, a Christian, which we know is a very high number in this, in this country, gives three times as much of their money and their time to charities, the average evangelical gives 10 times as much. When you begin to apply that to an entire culture, you begin to understand why in countries where there is a, an absence of a vibrant church, that there is also um, a lack of concern for the poor, for the, for the ones that Jesus called the least of these. You even go on to say that in the Declaration of Independence, where it says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, the only way a statement like that makes sense is if man is endowed by his creator yes. with certain inalienable rights? That's right. A statement like that only makes sense within a Christian context. That is to say, what, what is, well, what, what is self-evidential about the equality of man? It's just right. Yeah, well, but, but it isn't because no, no other um, uh, nation would, would have that particular view. Or let us just say, no, nowhere outside of the West 
we believe that because we have been heavily influenced by Judeo-Christian worldview because the only thing that is self-evidential about man is his inequality, um, social, physical, intellectual. There, there are massive inequalities. So what does a statement like that mean? It means that in some um, spiritual sense that men are equal. And that, of course, only makes sense if there's a God. Thank you, Larry Taunton. Coming up. Many of you are probably familiar with, um, with Stossel, and his show is certainly worth watching. He, uh, he has particularly a focus and a dislike, a dislike for, um, for big governments. And, uh, of course, that even comes up in the course of this conversation. Uh, and in as intelligent uh, as Stossel is, he makes, uh, again, what I think is kind of a revealing um, statement, um, uh, similar to Hitchens, insofar as on the one hand, we don't really need uh, belief in Jesus Christ. We don't need any kind of higher power. We don't need that. We can be good without it. Um, history tells us otherwise. We can't. Um, we never have been. It's not within us um, to be good. Uh, we have no ability to be good apart from the working of the Holy Spirit and uh, the Lord's common grace restraining us. And hence the reason that I, uh, that I make reference to it is actually a statement made by a man uh, named Vishal Mangalwadi, who is an Indian um, scholar. And Mangalwadi, uh, they, they cut that out. I cited um, Mangalwadi in, uh, in the program. But Mangalwadi who is not from the West, makes a profound observation. And that is to say, he, he was saying that as a Christian, I now get what, what uh, your, your founding documents really mean when they say that all men are created equal. But I must tell you that in my own country of India, in anywhere outside of the West, anywhere outside of those places that have been heavily influenced by a Judeo-Christian worldview, that statement makes not a bit of sense. Because men are not created equal. And you see, ladies and gentlemen, as we increasingly abandon our biblical uh, foundations, we increasingly discover that people are saying, you know what? People are just like any other animal. People are not created equal. People do not have equal value. And some of them should have their necks wrung like a chicken and thrown into a cat litter box. That's what's happening. That's where we're going. Having re uh, rejected the existence of the absolute universal truth anchored in the person of Jesus Christ, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, we now have an impoverished view of man. Some of you may be familiar with an article that I published um, almost two months ago in The Atlantic um, entitled um, Listening to Young Atheists. Um, this piece went viral, much to, um, to my surprise, and elicited responses from Redeemer Prez to the Gospel Coalition to Mark Driscoll and um, many others, and not, not to say uh, 
that it didn't also elicit fairly strong responses from, uh, from unbelievers. But the, the, the piece, the intent of the piece, and it's a fairly gentle piece. That is, I wasn't really seeking to skewer anyone in this. For the, uh, over a year now, we at Fixed Point Foundation have been conducting interviews with students, uh, that is to say undergraduates, who have embraced unbelief. And the way these interviews go is we just want to know why. What, what is it that you don't find compelling about religion? Specifically, what don't you find compelling about Christianity? And what would drive you not simply to say, ah, I'm not going to go to church or I don't believe in God, but I, I am now going to embrace its opposite. I am going to become a member of an organization um, that is actively unbelieving. These were all students who belonged to what are called um, SSAs, Secular Student Alliances or um, Free Thought Societies. And I've had a lot of engagement with them because I speak on college campuses rather frequently, and it's sort of what led me to think, I'd like to get to know some of these kids, what they're about. And so what we did was we put out on my Twitter and Facebook, and um, my secretary began calling a lot of these different groups and saying, hey, um, uh, you know, we'd like to interview you. Would you be willing to participate? And initially, some of them were a little bit nervous, but they did because they thought, you know, they know what I do for a living, and they think, okay, this is some kind of setup. You know, they're going to get us cornered in uh, his office and then, you know, pelt us with the gospel. And we said, no, that's, that's not the intent. Really what we want to do. We might argue with you later, but not now. All we want to do now is just listen to your story, your journey to unbelief. And you'll want to look at this article because some of these stories will move you powerfully. Um, listening to young atheists in the Atlantic. In any case, a couple of those stories um, I will share with you, some of which that are not published there that come to my mind. And what we heard surprised us. Um, the Atlantic gave it the subtitle, the, the uh, article, this subtitle, Lessons for a Stronger Christianity. Because um, I think rather astutely, uh, my editor at the Atlantic decided, you know what, what, what is contained in here is something the church really needs to pay attention to because we discovered so many of these students had walked away from the church. Many of them had attended churches, Bible-believing churches and so forth. And, um, and as the conversations went along and you're hearing, you're listening to some of, whom, some of them who are, who are wounded um, others who, uh, you know, are just obnoxious in their unbelief, there is that. But you, you also encounter a, a number of them that you think, gosh, you know, I wish they had attended a, a very different sort of church than the one that they, uh, that they encountered. But this was a theme that came up a lot. Um, those that we couldn't actually get to our offices, we interviewed on Skype. And this is important because uh, I think you lose with each form of communication, you know, you, you begin to lose a little bit of your communication. Face-to-face -face is better. Um, uh, Skype is next because you can still read body language. Phone after that, you know, email, text is the worst. But in, uh, in any case, at least on Skype, I can, still, I can still see you. And interviewing this young man at, at Stanford, we just let them talk. And as I feel that it's sort of wrapping up, I ask this question. I say, is there anything I should have asked you but didn't? 
And is there anything else you'd like to add? And he kind of shifted in his chair uncomfortably, and then he went on to talk about something we'd already talked about. And I thought, I sense he wants to tell me something else. And so again, I said, well, I think it's about time. I need to go. Is there anything I should have asked you but didn't or that you'd like to tell me? Again, he shifts uncomfortably in his chair, goes on to say nothing of, uh, of great content or value. And so a third time, I thought, okay, well, this is it. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have or that you want me to know? And again, he shifts uncomfortably in his chair and he says, I'm a gay man. I said, you know, we've been talking, Stephen, I'll say his name is Stephen, for two hours and you've never mentioned that. Why did you take so long? He said, because I knew you were an evangelical and I figured that conversation wouldn't go very well. He said, so you thought I was going to mistreat you. He said, I thought that might be the case. I said, you know, you are right to assume that I am opposed to homosexuality. I do think that it is wrong. But you have misunderstood the Christian faith, if, or me, if you think that that meant I was going to now mistreat you. Because, you see, I have a higher view of you than you have of you. I believe you are an immortal being who is made in the image of God. And that obliges me to treat you with respect. He seemed to know what to say. That conversation meandered for a little bit as we talked about what the Christian view of homosexuality was, which seemed to be one that he'd never heard. He was aware that evangelicals are opposed to homosexuality. What he hadn't heard was, was a positive case for why Christians believe what they believe. And then another young lady that I spoke to, similar conversation, she was in Arizona, as I recall, and she was telling me how she had grown up in one foster home after another, seven in all, I think. And she said that she had believed in God and uh, had, had prayed to him for deliverance from her awful circumstances, and she began to believe that he must not be there because he didn't answer her prayers. And uh, she went, and then she said, well, I don't know, maybe he does exist, and He's just trying to teach me something. And again, um, she's sitting like this. Her eyes were, uh, you know, she looked rather emotional. Her eyes kind of uh, welled up with tears. And, and again, I'm ending the conversation and I'm saying, um, we'll say her name is Stephanie. Stephanie, um, I have to go. A friend of mine is honking his horn in my parking lot right now because I'm a little bit late for a lunch <laughs> appointment. But is there anything I didn't ask you that you'd like me to know? And she said, no, she couldn't think of anything. And I said, Stephanie, I hope you don't feel that I've drawn you into a conversation where I'm now going to renege on what I said. I said, I wasn't going to argue with you. But I do think it's very important that I say this to you, Stephanie. There is a God, and he does care for you. And you are fearfully... And wonderfully made in his image. You have eternal value. 
And I'm afraid that you've bought into a cultural idea, a very bad one, that says you have none. And that you are an animal just like any other. And it is a lie. What you've just seen on the screen, this is, this is what kids are hearing. This is what they're believing. This is what they're buying into. Ladies and gentlemen, when Scripture tells us that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139, and let me bring you back to it, it means this. The Hebrew word that is there translated as fearfully carries with it the, the, uh, uh, the meaning of God's infinite power. Think of that. It means that God brought all of His might, His creativity, His majesty, His wonder to bear in creating each and every human being. But there's a prior argument. Genesis 1, which tells us that not only are we fearfully and wonderfully made, but that we are made in the image of God. Think of that. That's not said of anything else in the created order. Nothing else. You are all image bearers. This means that we're not strictly physical beings, but we're spiritual beings as well. It means that that we have one foot firmly planted in the material world and another one planted in the spiritual world. Thomas Aquinas, the medieval theologian, put it this way. God made the angels all spirit and no flesh. He made the animals all flesh and no spirit. And He made man a composite of both spirit and flesh. And thus man has the ability to ascend to the higher, to the spiritual, to the divine, or to descend to the lower, to the animal. In this country, we are presently descending to the lower, to the animal. And it is because we have rejected the simple and glorious truth that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. Ladies and gentlemen, as I close, I would say this to you. First, let me speak to those of you who might be here who do not know Jesus Christ. God has a plan for your life. He created you. He loves you. And as the passage that we have looked at this morning says, it tells us that all of the days of your life were ordained. They were written in His book before one of them came to be. Is there a purpose for you? Oh, I think there is. He ordained them. If you do not know Jesus Christ, this morning find the rightful object of your worship. Find your purpose in Him. 
There are elders in this church who will gladly meet you after this service. I will gladly meet you after this service and tell you what it means to be a child of God, to confess your sins and to invite Jesus Christ into your heart. Secondly, let me speak to those of you who are Christians and who perhaps have never really internalized this message. You know you're saved. You know you're justified and you know where you're going, but you kind of really doubt your value. You doubt your worth. You don't like the way you look. You feel that you were shortchanged when the talents or whatever were handed out. You, uh, you don't really feel that you're of much use to anybody. And what I would say to you is this. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God has a divine purpose for your life. You were made precisely the way He wanted you to be made. You weren't an accident. You were, you were made with a divine purpose in mind. Fulfill it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for Your Word that serves as a lamp unto our feet. And that, Father, that it can encourage us and provide us with clarity of direction. Father, we are mindful of those people that we encounter every day who are hurting, who do not know You, who doubt their value, who feel that they themselves are worthless. Perhaps they've been made to feel that by other people around them. Father, help us to... um, live out this message in our lives and to proclaim it to a hurting and dying world. Father, finally, we pray for, uh, for Chris and we ask for uh, wisdom for physicians who would, uh, and other medical personnel who would evaluate him and that, uh, that this would be resolved and that he would be restored speedily. Pray for patients and the, uh, the children, that you would encourage and support them and that you would Uh, continue to use this church uh, for your divine purposes uh, to encourage uh, this community. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.